What a tough chapter, isn't it? Um, and I will, I will start out by just giving a warning. There is a million messages in this one chapter. Um, so I'm going to try my hardest to stay on track. I'm going to try my hardest to stay where God wants us to go rather than where we want to go. Uh, but I am going to pinpoint some little lessons that we may not elaborate on. So hopefully you're good note takers. Uh, I know all of you have really studied this chapter already in advance since you had two weeks uh, on it. Uh, so that gives me a little leeway to go off into Psalm where I think Lord was, was really leading us. Um, so that's, that's just a, a side note of where we're going. Uh, but before we get there, here's a real life story. Uh, Dan had moved into college. He had gotten to his junior year. So he's finally out of the school and in the dorms and got his own apartment. Uh, his mother was wondering how he was going to be able to cover all the costs of everything. He said, mom, no big deal. I got a roommate and that's going to help make everything a lot easier for me. So first semester goes by and it comes Christmas time and, and he's just, he's got a job. Things are going well. So he asked his mom, says, why don't you come visit me instead of me getting to, to come back home during this, this break? And his mom says, that'd be great. So she comes and, uh, she's at the house and she realizes his roommate is a female. So this prompts mom to be a little worried, a little concerned. And she says, Hey, uh, you're kind of playing with fire. Uh, if, if, you know, this is what you want to do, I just want to warn you and give advice. And Dan looks at his mom and says, Mom, this is no big deal. This is strictly a roommate, you know, strictly we, we've got fine lines. She's got her own bedroom. I've got my own bedroom. Things are okay, mom. No big deal. Nothing to worry about whatsoever. So mom says, okay. And she begins to meet this, this young lady and they talk and, well, this young lady had just got a new book. So mom says, well, can I look at that book while I'm here? I love reading. So this mom borrows the book and then she reads it and time goes on and she goes back home after a week of visiting. Well, after a, a day or two, the young lady goes to Dan and says, Hey, uh, that book I let your mom look at, I never got it back. Do you think she may have took it? So this is what he texts his mom. And I want to get the wording right because that's important. He texts his mom, Mom, obviously I'm not saying that you took the book, but the fact remains that the book is missing and you were the last one who had it. So later that afternoon, the mom sent back a text that said, Danny, I'm obviously not saying that you're sleeping with Allison, but the fact remains that the book's been on her bed since I left. And if she would have been in her own bed on her pillow at night, she would have found the book right where I left it. I'm sure Allison was sleeping on the couch and it was no big deal. Don't we all know what it's like to be caught in sin? It's a rough situation, isn't it? It's all right when we're looking at somebody else's boat. We're stuck on our own, man. That thing's tough. Two weeks ago, we looked at, at David and his fall to Bathsheba, a chapter that we all know. And I think we're very familiar with chapter 12 as well, which is what allows us a little bit of leeway in, in looking at what David did in the book of Psalm this week, um, which is where we'll be here in just a minute. But but we said this. We said that everyone sins. And I think that's very true. We are in a room full of sinners. Uh, you are in your houses full of sinners. And uh, we could call out and, and ask requests, but there's no need to do that. We're just going to agree that we're all sinners and we all got a problem with sin. But the significant thing with David that we learned is this. What makes you and what makes the biggest difference in your life between life, death, victory and defeat is how you handle sin. It's whether you agree that it is sin, that it is against God, that it is it is something you did or. If you try to cover it up. So we use this verse into into two weeks ago. I'm sorry. Last week was Mother's Day. Uh, into two weeks ago, we said Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So you got two, two promises, two different accounts. One, you can be a concealer and not prosper. Or you can confess and forsake and you get mercy. And that's where we're at for David. So if you've got your Bibles, 
You're going to be at Psalm, or, uh, 2 Samuel. I'm stuck on Psalm, man. 2 Samuel chapter 12 at the beginning. So I open there, and in a minute we're going to flip to Psalm 51. And here's how it starts. It says, well, some time had went on, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, some people try to look at this, and they say, we have no idea how long David had stayed stuck in his sin and how long he had chose to rebel against God. Well, I went to college, and I learned that when a woman gets uh, pregnant, it takes nine months to have a baby. So a college degree, if you didn't figure it out, you will be able to figure out exactly how long this is just by going to college. So since I went to college, I know that it's been at least nine months, right at nine months, 40 weeks to be exact, since chapter 11 happened. So are we in agreement with that? Okay, because when I read stuff and they're like, the Bible doesn't say exactly how long. Just because the Bible didn't say 40 weeks ago, David slept with. We can use our brains. God has given us biblical wisdom to be able to acknowledge the fact that it's been 40 weeks if she's delivering, maybe 37, maybe 42. I don't care. Okay, but we got a good idea how long it was. And either way, that's a long time to stay trapped in sin. So God says and he knows the timing is right because God knows his children. And God says, you know what? Now, now I'm going to send Nathan. Isn't it good to know that when we are stuck in sin, whether it be 40 weeks, four days or four hours, we have a God that loves us so much. He's going to send a way to get us back. He said that that's significant, man. Right at the very beginning that he sends Nathan. Nathan goes there. And, he, and here's what Nathan, you can imagine the fear maybe on Nathan. I don't know. You know, he's talking to the king. He's getting ready to kind of call the king out on the sin, which, by the way, I, I'm trying not to get off on too many tangents. I, I got to point this out. Though. Notice the way he calls David out. He doesn't run up in the, in the, in the temple or, or, the, or the, the, uh, the palace. Hey, you're a dirty sinner. You've been sleeping on Uriah's wife. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Did you see any of that? Matter of fact, in all honesty, do you see any of that ever in Scripture? Whether it be Jesus ministering to somebody, one of the prophets or anybody else. Then why in the world are we dumb enough to use that thing today? Come on, let's be honest. How often do we see people out there that, oh, I'm just going to tell them they're a sinner and they're going to hell if they don't. Why? How many people has that actually converted over to a real relationship? Now, I'm not asking how many people do you get to say, I'm sorry for getting caught. I'm saying how many people develop a real relationship with God based off that mentality? I would say very, very, very few, if not none, realistically. So Nathan does what God had given him the wisdom to do. He goes to, he goes to David and said, David, I've heard this thing about you and it kind of bothered me. But before we even get to that, I want to share a story with you. And he shares this story about a rich guy who had a lot of stuff and a poor guy that had little stuff, had a rich guy took from the little man. And, and, and he goes on and he goes on and he goes on about this story. And somewhere through the story, David gets outraged because we're quick to judge others when we're stuck in sin ourselves, correct? And we're quick to throw out harsher penalties against somebody when we're stuck in sin ourselves, right? Notice David's sin, sleeping with another man's wife, by, by the law, is a punishment by, by murder, by death. This stealing of a lamb is not the exact same punishment, yet that's exactly what David jumps to instantly. A harsher, stricter, legalistic mindset against this. And Nathan just proceeds with the story. And he goes on and he goes on and he, and he points this thing out. And then he gets to point seven or verse seven. The most direct application of a sermon ever. The most spot on pastor you've ever seen where there's no. I don't know who this applies to, but I'm sure it applies to somebody in the room. Nathan doesn't say any of that. Nathan looks at David and says, David, you are the man. 
Now, I've often wondered just because I've read this story a ton of times because I, I really like the life of David and, and what Scripture says about it. But I wonder, how long was the pause between the end of the story, David calling out that the guy should be murdered or, or, or penalized, and Nathan looking back at him and saying, David, you, you are the man. How long was that awkward moment before Nathan looked up and responded? I wonder maybe if David had pr- pronounced this, this penalty on him and, and been this way, and perhaps he just looked to see if David would begin to let it click and let all the stuff go together. And then as it clicked, Nathan was like, yeah, you're right. You're. Now, I'm not talking about like a you to man like we say nowadays. He's not you to man. You are the man. You are the one that is guilty of this. Church, I'm going to tell you right now, not in a, in, a, in, a, in a not in the way that we just now talked about telling people to go into hell, but we need some people that are bold enough in their faith. They're going to call sin, sin. We need some churches. We need some pastors. We need some Bible studies. We, we, we need some, some Bible teachers. that are going to call sin, sin and quit sugarcoating stuff. That are going to look at somebody and instead of being worried about losing their biggest donor or being afraid of what's going to happen to their, their population and their views online and all that stuff. We need some pastors that are going to look at people when they're stuck in sin and say, you are the man. This is not a sugar-coated thing. You messed up. You ruined your relationship with God and you are going to have consequences from it. And if you don't get right, the consequences are going to be deeper than you can even handle. We need that. How's the timing gets right? Maybe not starting that way, but we need some people that are just going to be bold enough. Not not afraid. Look at Nathan. Nathan could have had his head decapitated at the very moment and been done. And nobody else would have ever known Nathan even went there because David had that kind of authority as the king. Yet Nathan had already been to David once as his, as his pastor, as a spiritual advisor. So they've developed this relationship. And because I believe that God had used him before to develop this kind of relationship, I believe that that God called Nathan specifically to David at this exact moment because he knew the heart of David and he knew David would respond the right way. How many people has God sent in your life at the exact right opportunity for the exact perfect setup for you to get right that you've denied the ability to be used by God to get right back in your relationship with him? How many times, how many times have we been stuck and been the man or the woman for you ladies who are stuck in that situation, yet we refuse to accept it? This is where David's at. This is this is where conviction is inescapable. His actions are are, are, are undeniable. And he's saying this right here to David, basically saying, David, you have been happy in 40 weeks because God's not happy. Maybe that's with some of you today. Maybe some of us today are saying, you're not happy in your life right now because God's not happy. And if God's not happy and he's the controller of your life, what makes you think you're going to be happy? Some of you are living in misery because you've been this hiding this sin for so long and trying to cover it up that you're just letting it destroy everything. David gets to this part. He gets this message. And Nathan says in verse seven, you're the man. And then he adds, so he said, not only are you the man, you are the man that the God of Israel anointed to be king. Man, it's one thing when you find out you're the guilty guy. It's another thing when you're reminded of how awesome God's been to you. You know that song about testify? Yeah, we need to testify about how awesome God is to us. We need to never forget. We need to go back to our list that we've made and stuff from weeks ago and look at how awesome God is and what all God's done for us. He says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And if that had been too little. If that wasn't enough, David, I would have also given you so much more. Why have you despised 
the commandment of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. And Nathan goes on and Nathan talks to him and Nathan calls out this stuff and he even tells him. Now, this is sad right here, folks, but you need to understand this. He even tells me, he goes, your neighbor, which ends up being your son here in just a couple of chapters, is going to sleep with your wives, concubines, your women. And it's not going to be this hidden thing like it was with Bathsheba. It's going to be a public event for people to know. And he says, not even that. If you get to chapter 16, which we'll be to in a few weeks, you're going to find out that his son slept with his concubines on the same roof that he was sitting on when he looked at Bathsheba taking a bath. Can you imagine the gut punch that that was? I only point that out, not because it's a big thing, but just to understand that what is prophesied right here is going to come to pass exactly as Scripture says it. And, and, and it's where it's going. And, and then you get the rest of this, and then you get this. But then you get to verse 13, and thank God for verse 13. You need a verse 13 in your life. We say 13 is an unlucky number. I, I don't really believe in that because this 13 is awesome. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. That's boom. Boom. That's it, man. That's the right response when called out on sin. I have sinned against Yahweh. And then Nathan said to David, Yahweh has put away your sin. You shall not die. Man, when I read this every time, I'm like, that was just too easy. I mean, just just read, just read verse 13 and tell me that's not the easiest solution ever. Right? I'm thinking, hold on, he didn't have to go back and, and, and memorize anything. He didn't have to do any special religious observances. He, he didn't have to, he didn't have to publicly confess. He what do you mean? That's it. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's how easy true repentance is. Cause true repentance is in the heart. Now, now you got to notice something. When Saul did his lack of repenting, but trying to publicly repent, look at how many words he used. Look back at all the verses we use and how fancy he got with his words and how many people he blamed here and how many excuses he had there and, and how much of his resume he threw out. He had all this fancy, nice stuff written. But you know who didn't have true repentance? Saul. You know who's, who's called a man after God's own heart? David, who fully acknowledges and says, I, I've sinned against Yahweh. And when it's true repentance like that, the, the deliverance is easy. But you need to understand verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you is going to die. And then verse 15, I wish it just said, and the pastor did a mic drop. Verse 15, then Nathan went to his house. He's like, boom, job done, mic drop, I'm out. You know, I kind of thought that was really a corny thing for pastors to do, to do the mic drop. But I'm like, that right there was spot on. You know, when you can preach like that to a king and then drop the mic and roll on out, like that's, that's pretty much spot on. Here's what happens. Repentance helps David but it doesn't take away the consequences. We got to understand that. We got to understand that. And, and, and I know for some of us, we're going to be looking at this and we're thinking, man, how harsh was God though to, to, to punish this, this child? Was the child really punished? Now let, let's take emotion away, away from it. Okay. I'm with you. I can't stand to hear anything about a baby. Dying. Crystal got so mad because she knew what was in this chapter when I asked her to read it. I mean, it, that's just the natural human emotion of us. Did this baby really have any punishment? If we're honest, no, it was probably saved from a lot of grief. It was probably saved from a lot of heartache. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying like that. That's a good thing. And that makes it easy to deal with. But in all honesty, who had the punishment here? If you're a parent, you ought to know this answer big time. Who had the punishment here? Did mom and dad not have the greatest punishment? Am I, am I right? I, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now that I cannot imagine anything worse than losing my wife or losing my kids. Cannot imagine anything worse. So, yeah, the punishment. 
was to David and Bathsheba. It was to them. So, and, and we could go back and study this, and if you want to, call me. We'll, we'll, we'll text, we'll do some Bible study on it, or, or whatever else. But I don't want to spend the remainder of our time right here, because here's what we need to grab from this and what's going on. First thing we need to do is we need to understand that David is writing a psalm during this exact moment of his life right now, Psalm 51. So if you've got a Bible, flip there, mark that page, because we're going to spend a lot of time on Psalm 51, and then we're going back to chapter 12. But as we said, everybody sins. The question is how we're going to deal with our sin. Both of these men were even held accountable for their sin. Samuel had went to Saul. Nathan has gone to David. One tries to cover things up. The other throws himself at the mercy of God. And here's one of four ways that we deal with exposed sin in our life. Now, this is super, super brief. So if you're a note taker, you ain't got a lot to take with it. All right. Because we're not spending as much time here because I think I think we've got sermons on this before. All right. Especially in the book of Samuel already. First one, though. We hide it or we deny it. First way you deal with exposed sin is you hide it or you deny it. And we might even get to the point where we say, you know what? I had trouble with that in the past, but not anymore. Like I'm over that. I watch uh, um, live PD and, uh, and I, I love to hear some of the excuses these guys will come up with. Particularly last night, there's a guy, I think it was last night or yesterday during the day, one or two. Guy, guy gets caught. He's got um, meth and heroin in his pocket, in his sock. It was in his sock, matter of fact. The needle was in his pocket. Anyway, he gets caught. And his excuse, oh, I'm overcoming that. This is my last hit before I enter myself into rehab. <laughs> Literally what the guy said. The officer looks at him and says, you mean to tell me you're going to use all that before you go into rehab? He goes, well, I can't really use all that at once because my body can't handle that much. Like he really knew what the limit was realistically, right? But how much do we do that same thing? We try to deny it. We try to hide it. Whatever it else it is. If I was to ask, just be honest, we're all in the same room or at least you're in your same house if you're online, right? How many of us got a hidden sin in our life? Past, present, or future? I'm the only one. Well, dear God, please stone me now, right? Because if, if your pastor is the only one with hidden problems in his life, that, that's bad news for everybody else, okay? You guys should be up here and I should be where you are. We all do, Correct. How many of us have something in our past that people still don't know about? Now, I'm not saying like you should be ashamed of it anymore or anything, but there's just certain laundry you don't hang up, right? You know, you're 90. You don't hang out the 90 for everybody to see. You hang out the nightgown, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just different. Now, now you, you people know you got it, right? But, but you don't advertise it. So we've all got something hidden on a pastor like that. But yet we do that when we come to church. We put on our little fake smile. We tote our little Bible with the naked uh, babies on it. Like like we're just super holy and, and things are great. Cherubims, whatever you want to call them, right? And, and we got all that going to, to cover up ourselves because we like to hide and deny our sin, right? Second way we do it. I told you I wasn't going to stay on that long, so I apologize. Second way, we rationalize it. We rationalize it. We explain why our sin's really not that bad. I wasn't really hurting anybody. This was just a small thing, right? Or how about everybody's doing it? Or how about I can't help myself? How about my desires are just too strong? You don't understand. Right? Don't we do that? We rationalize it. Third thing uh, some do. We blame shift. We blame shift. It's not really my fault. You have no idea what they did to me. It's not really my fault. You don't understand. My Here's the favorite. My situation is different than theirs. I ain't met a person yet stuck in sin. Their situation ain't different than somebody else's, right? And that, and that to keep my situation just so different. I was raised different. I was I was handled different. I was treated different. Whatever it is, right? We, we, we blame shift. Saul did all three of these things every time he's caught. Adam and Eve at the very beginning of the garden did all these things every single time. You know what David refused to do? Those three things. David did number four. David says you can repent. 
He acknowledges that he sinned and he, and he writes Psalm 51. Probably, in my opinion, the clearest picture of what true gospel-centered repentance should really look like in his wording. That's why I want us to spend a lot of time right there. So if you've got your Bibles, if you hadn't already flipped there, go to Psalm 51 and just look at how David starts this thing. And remember, he's writing this while he's stuck in this conversation with Nathan. Right? Who knows? He might have even started it just before, or, or it may have been started while he's sitting there at his table, you know, hearing the story, or, or it's instantly when, when Nathan does the mic drop and walks out, that's when he starts writing it. I don't know. But this is when it's written at this exact moment in his life, and he starts out with this. Have mercy on me, O oh God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Just just stop at verse 1 to part right there and, and pause and ask yourself, what is the basis of David's plea? When we want genuine, true repentance, what is the basis of David's plea? Where is his hope? Write it down. The mercy of God. Nothing else. N- nothing else. Notice where it's, maybe you should write down, maybe you should write down where it's not at. Because sometimes that's where we put our hope and we mess up. David is not trying to rationalize it, right? He's not trying to make it seem like on a scale of things what he did is really not that bad. He doesn't look at Nathan and say, Nathan, you just don't understand how many marriage problems I'm having with all my wives. I can't imagine how many marriage problems he's having when you got all them wives, right? I, I, he's not saying, you know what, Nathan, you don't understand. All my wives have had a headache for the last two weeks. Right? There's none of that. There's not, he owns it, right? He, so he's not trying to rationalize. He's not making it seem like on a scale of things it's not that bad. He, he's not in any of his past righteousness. How easy would it have been for a guy like David to say, yeah, but God, I'm a really great king. But God, I'm the one who struck down Goliath. That was me. God, I've got a lot of capital in the bank that I need to cash out on. No, none of that. That's not what he does. He doesn't try to bargain with God. You ever tried to bargain with God? Anybody bold enough to admit that? I've been there. I've been there. I've been there with speeding tickets. You're sitting there and the blue lights are flashing behind you. Like, all right, God, if you just get me out of this one time, I will not speed again. You know what happens? I sped again and I sped again and I sped again. I'm a liar. I'm a liar. I got a problem lying to God about speeding. Right. <laughs> How about that for public confession? Right. <laughs> but but he doesn't try to do any of this. He doesn't say, God, if you get me out of this, I'll be forever faithful in the future. He doesn't he doesn't try to bargain with God. Here's what he does. He puts all of his hope in one place. He says the mercy of God. Now, that's audacious faith. When we talk about wanting to have audacious faith, that's audacious faith. I've got only one plea, one hope, one one thing. It's your mercy plus nothing else. Your mercy, God, plus nothing else. So here's the question. Is God's mercy great enough that you can make it the entire basis of your hope? Is your view of God's mercy great enough that you can make it the basis of everything you hope in? Or are you stuck in the thing of thinking he wants something else to go with it? You look at Romans, you look at Peter, you look at other letters in the New Testament, and repeatedly they say a phrase about our hope is only in the grace of God. Do we say that or do we say but? I thought by being here this morning, he would give me a little more grace and mercy. You're a church attendant. There's not like a roll call in heaven on how many church attendances you had. Huh? So, so, some of y'all, some of y'all, I think y'all thought we was like checking if you logged in online or not during this time. I did. I have a list. So I know all of you should be at the alt dogs. We didn't. I don't even know how to use half that stuff that we're doing. Right. But think about this. Though. That, that's not how it works. He's saying, God, there's nothing but your mercy. Give me mercy plus nothing else. Nothing else. That's the sole thing of my plea. And I'll tell you right now, if your sole plea is for God's mercy, there's nothing God can't do in your life. 
There's nothing for those that came to him in Scripture, both Jesus in the New Testament and, and prophets in the Old Testament, who came with that attitude, who didn't turn away different. The ones who get turned away and the ones who are still stuck in sin and stuck in problems are the ones who had mercy plus obligation to blank. Maybe you could put it this way, and I think this is probably some of our biggest ones since we're a church crowd, right? Being delivered from sin is easy. Being delivered from your religion is the most difficult. Hmm? Being delivered from sin, that's the easy part. It's being delivered from your religion that most people find difficult. Sin separates us from God, but our self-righteousness is what keeps us separated from God. Us thinking that we keep doing enough to do it, right? Before God can save you from your sin, (laughs) he's got to save you from all the reasons that your yourself's not good enough to deal with your sin. Right? God has an abundant mercy for sinners, but our righteousness is what tries to keep us from that mercy. God didn't call you to be righteous. He called you to be humble. He called you to be obedient. Then you get to this, this, this next verse here in Psalm. We're going to be in Psalm 51 for a while. So say that, right? For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's owning it, man. He is owning it. You want to know why David can be a guy who sleeps with another woman, who loses a child and who kills that, that other woman's husband and still be called a man after God's own heart? Cause he owns it. He's quit with all the excuses and, and, and all that other stuff, right? He doesn't come out with any of the, you don't understand the pressure I'm under as king. You don't understand the, who's really responsible. It's really her fault for bathing there in front of me this way and washing the way she was. Or, or even better, you, you, you try, we try to avoid the conversation altogether. If this would have been present day and one of us, Nathan would have come in and started the story. And right before he said, you were the man, we'd have been, oh, hold on, I got a phone call. I got to, I got to step out and, and, and talk to, don't we do that, don't we? We try to avoid it altogether. Or, or now, now, now David doesn't necessarily do this, or we try to turn it around on them. Well, you know, I'm glad you came to me to talk about sin because I need to tell you about some of your sins. Right? Here's some things I've been noticing about you. We, we do that. What David is doing here is complete opposite of these things. He's basically saying, yeah, what you're saying is right. No, cut through all the bull, quit, quit with all the excuses, and he's saying, you're right. It's me. I've done it. I know my transgressions and my sin and my sin. Is, is, is right here before me. And then you get to verse five where it says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and my sin. My mother conceived me. What's he really saying in like new age terms? If, if, if we're not back in, in Bible days, he's saying, man, it comes natural to me. That's what he's really saying. Think about this now. He's saying I'm born like this. I don't even have to practice to be this good at it. That That is, look at it. You talk about owning it. He's saying flat out, my behavior is not this exception. That's just how I am from birth. Right? I mean, here's the thing to prove it. How often do we use an excuse? Oh, you caught me in a bad moment. Right? We lash out at somebody. We yell at somebody. We flip out on somebody. We road rage somebody. We sleep with another woman. We sleep with another man, whatever it was. And we use the excuse. It was just that moment. It was not just the moment. It was you. Okay, right? And I'm saying to myself, I looked in the mirror while I said this phrase. It's me. It's not the moment. It's like David said, I'm born this good at it, right? You didn't catch me in a bad moment. You caught me the way I am. We are deeply flawed. And every once in a while, we actually reveal what's going on on the inside of us. Correct? Now, see, this blows this blows new age church and religion out the water because we want to say the heart is good and the heart is sweet. And we use stupid words like just follow your heart, sweetheart. Don't follow your heart. 
Your heart is the dumbest thing about you. Scripture says it. Scripture says your heart is evil. It is dirty. It is nasty. Right? Following your heart is what gets you in trouble. Following your heart is what gets you into the bad moment. Right? Think about kids. Are kids not naturally rebels? Tell me, are they not naturally? Just be honest. Right? You put them in their crib once they're, once they're old enough, when they say no. If they don't say no, they're whining, kicking, screaming, grabbing, doing whatever they can, shaking stuff, throwing stuff. No. One of the first words our kids learn, I think, right? Now, now here's, here's the thing if we're honest. We question how original sin works, but nobody denies original sin. We don't deny that idea, right? Nobody says, well, there's no such thing as original sin. Nobody denies that because it is. You don't believe that. Come hang out with my kids and I'll teach you. Right. Nobody wakes up at 5 a.m. and their eight year old who is supposed to be in bed is actually cleaning the house while listening to scripture at the same time. And then randomly stops sweeping, falls down on the floor and says, oh, Father God, I need to be closer to you than I've ever been before in my life. That does not naturally happen. Right. You leave the house for five minutes and you come back home and it's burning down. That's what naturally happens. Am I correct? Okay, this, this, this is a natural problem, right? And I realize this. People sinned against us. People have done this. People have put us in sin. Right? You're not deprived. You're depraved. Okay? You're, you're corrupt if you're all honesty. And we can quit with the excuses of, 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 yeah, but my problem was I was hanging out with the other crowd. You are the other crowd, right? If you didn't enjoy hanging with the other crowd, you wouldn't have been in the other crowd. So therefore, you are the other crowd. I need to make sure we get this because we're not going to get to the solution if we don't understand this. You have to understand that you are the other crowd. You are the bad moment before you can get to the fixture of it. Okay? Now go back to verse 4 because I skipped it and I apologize. Verse 4, he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, maybe I skipped it because the first time I read it, I'm like, David, you're an idiot. What do you mean against you and you only? Did you forget about Bathsheba? Did you forget about Uriah? Did you forget about all those other soldiers that died? Like, what are you really getting at? And then I realized something. David, David is so spiritually strong. He's not really saying he didn't do anything wrong to those other people. What he's saying is two things. One, he's saying, I realized that my sin began against God. It didn't begin against anybody else. It began against God. All of our sin ultimately is directed at God. We're not satisfied with what God, what God has given us, right? We want more. I watched it. We're like little dogs on a leash. Now you laugh, but I'm dead serious. You know how short or, or how much, if you're a dog, right? Pretend you're a dog. You know how much you think the dog leash is too short? Just one inch. I, I can prove that because my mom came over yesterday. They brought us the, the old John Deere mower because the boys got tired of pushing mowing the grass. So now they've got them a, a ride mower and all that going. And, and But while she brought it, she's sitting there holding the, the, the little rat thing that they have. Teach her to leave early during church, right? So she's holding this little rat thing and it's attached to this, this leash that like extends. Well, sometimes she's got it at like six feet, but that dog wants to go six feet and one inch. You watch it. So you would think, okay, if she lets it go to like the seven foot mark or the eight foot mark, the dog will be happy. So she extends it out to the full 15 feet. You want to know how far the dog wants to go? 15 feet and one inch. We always want to go one inch further than we want, than we're allowed to go. Correct. We're like dogs on a leash. We understand what I'm trying to say now. Right. So David realizes all my sin is beginning against God. I'm basically jealous. What, what does jealous do? Jealous means I want somebody else's car, somebody else's girlfriend, somebody else's look, somebody else's talent, whatever it is. Right. Basically, here's what jealousy really is. It's saying, God, I don't trust you with what you gave me. And I think I need more. Let's call jealousy what it really is. 
It's not just being envious of people's other stuff. It's flat out saying, God, what you've given me isn't enough and it ain't going to cut it. And I need more. Now, if we call it that way, you think we'll still look at God with jealousy? If we had to say it that way every time? I don't think I could look at God and say it quite that way, right? It's like the Ten Commandments, church. We get so focused on all these Ten Commandments. You know how many Ten Commandments you got to keep? It's a trick question. Some of you are thinking, hold on, we got to say all. How about let's just keep the first one? Am I, am I, think about it. Some of y'all flipping around, hold on, I got to get that. See, what's the first one? I only got, I only got one to keep. And if I only got to keep one, I can do that, right? Right? What's the first one? Huh? What is it? So love me, right? With all your heart. Not part of your heart. Not some of your heart. Not the leftover rooms in your heart. Not the closet you just made in your heart. All your heart. Right? Love me with all your heart. Here's the deal, guys. We break the other commandments, which, by the way, is more than 10. But we break them because we don't keep the first. If we would keep the first, we would follow all the rest. See how simple that is? But we want to make it all complicated and hard like like it's some new thing. You don't understand, Pastor. I did some study, and there's more than 10 of those things. There's 630-something of them. I don't know how in the world I'm going to be able to do it. Just keep the one. I promise you, if you focus on keeping the one the other nine or the other 632 of them, they'll come naturally to you, okay? They will. They will because if you want to keep the first one, which is to love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your mind, and you completely trust him, that'll keep all the others in place. It will. David says, why did I, he's basically like asking at this moment while he's writing this off, why did I, why did I need extra power to overcome this? And he also answers. He said, what was it about Bathsheba's beauty? And he answers. It wasn't the power of her beauty. It was it was her arms because I wasn't in your arms. It was her beauty because I wasn't captivated by your beauty. If you're captivated by God, you can't be captivated by anything else. That's why it's so dumb and gets on my nerves so much with infidelity. You can't be cheating on your spouse if you're captivated by your spouse. Oh, that's good. I need to write that. Yeah, that's good. Right. Now, men and women, listen, if you keep him or her captivated, they're not going to go looking nowhere else either. Now, I'm not giving them excuse. I'm just saying. Keep them captivated so that they're not looking. Don't be looking because you're captivated. Right? Same thing with God. But basically, David is realizing like God, God is saying, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't just want you to, to say you're sorry and then fantasize about all this other stuff. No different than I want to be married to my wife and have her fantasizing about other men. He says, I, I, I want it to be real, wholesome thing. I, I want all of it, right? So, so that's the first thing. He began, he understands that his sin began against God. Second thing, I didn't mean to stay on this long either. He realizes that God was the most important one he had offended. You're thinking, but hold on, go back to Uriah, man. Uriah got a really rotten deal of, of this, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, but here's the problem. And, and tell me, tell me this isn't real. This is real life. I can't right Tell me, tell me this doesn't make sense. We don't have a problem apologizing to the person we offended, right? If Uriah was still alive, you think David would have had a problem going and saying, Uriah, I'm really sorry? You think, you, I, I guarantee at some point he probably had a conversation with Bathsheba. I'm sorry I invited you over. I'm sorry you didn't deny me. <laughs> Whatever it was. I guarantee it. We don't have a problem with that. Where we fail, and this is where, this is where we get in trouble with true repentance. This is what's missing in most of our repentance. We focus on what the sin has done to others, and we forget about the insult it did to God. Understand now? That's why a lot of our repentance should be with God. This is big if you want to overcome it. 
You've got to understand that you sinned against God. David says it this way. He's overwhelmed. And I, I love if you really study some of what the, the Hebrew right here would mean. He says against you and you only. Anytime Hebrew has a repetition of a word, it shows the intensity of it. So when he says you and you only. The intensity and the emotion that he's in right now, right? When is the last time that you were so emotional about what your sin did to God? Not what your sin did to your marriage. Not what your sin did to your job. Not what your sin did to your insurance, right? Not what your sin did to your bank account. When's the last time you got emotional about what your sin did to God? You cried because it not only made you feel bad and embarrassed, you cried because it humiliated God. Been there? When you get there is where genuine, real repentance begins to happen. Not just sorry that you got caught. You're sorry about what it did to God. Until you're most upset about what your sin to God, you'll probably never really change. You'll probably, never, you'll probably be just like the crackhead or heroin head or meth head or whatever title you want to give him on live PD that still got it shoved in his sock that plans on going to rehab again and again and again and again. Because he's only sorry he got a ticket and got in trouble. The problem, we continue to go back to the same sins over and over. We were only sorry we got caught. We weren't sorry about what it did to our relationship with God. When you get sorry about what it did to your relationship with God, then victory comes. Then then, then you're like, all right, God, I understand what I did to you. Let's get this thing going. Then you get what Nathan said back. Your sin is no more. You're not going to die. Woo! Right? But but then he didn't realize there's still consequences that are coming. There's still consequences. Look at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth. In the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What's God's focus always on? The inside. What's our focus most of the time on? The outside. Our focus is on behavior. God's focus is the heart. Why? Because the heart is who you really are. Like I said before, God's not going to dwell in a heart that fantasizes about being with something, something or someone else. Right? Until you deal with the heart, any change you make is just superficial. God wants to totally recreate you. It's, it's, it's good stuff, right? It's not about, here's what, here's where I think David's focus is now changing. And maybe this is a big one for us if we get there, right? It, it's not that David is focusing on, on what he's done. He's focusing on who he's become. It's not just that he committed adultery. It's that he's become the kind of person that commits adultery. You notice the difference? He, he didn't just fall into a bad moment. He's the type of person now that does this. And this right here, ask yourself maybe this way. Do you ever notice how much of your confession is focused on what we did? Rather than who we are. Right. The action church isn't the problem. The heart is the problem. There's why I want to make sure we understand it. Your action isn't a problem. Your heart has produced that action. And until you fix the heart, those actions are going to continue to be produced. Until you start following command number one, you're not going to follow the rest of them. Verse seven in Psalm 51 still. He, he now begins to explain. This has got some cool illustration. Warning, you're going to have to go back and check out more of it. All right. He, he now talks about how God's going to heal him. Purge me with the hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You know what the hyssop was used for in scripture? Two main things, at least. First one was when it put the blood on the doorpost during Exodus. Ah, uh, now you see where David's going, right? I, I need I need that. I need that, that, that pass over over me kind of thing. Right. The other was when it cleansed lepers. Oh, now let's look a little deeper because now we've got a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. Imagine that, right? That the Passover, the blood symbolized the lamb has taken the death penalty, right? This is a picture of Christ on whom that our punishment and sin should have been on. 
How about the case of the leprosy that we just talked about, right? The ability to make things new. The ability to make things new, to recreate new life, to take off the old ugly skin and put on like some new baby skin, to restore purity in us, to remake our desires. We need the blood spread on us by the hyssop because it purges us. Maybe I'm thinking because I just watched it last night with the kids, but we don't need a, a neuralizer. Y'all, y'all know, y'all know back to our men in black. We don't need a neuralizer. We don't need the flashy light to make us forget stuff. We need to be newly created. God says, look, flat out, don't forget what you've done, because if you forget it, you won't recover from it. You need to recover. Now, there's a time where you put it far enough back where it's like a, a rear view mirror where it just takes up a little bit of the windshield. Right. You don't stare at it the whole time, but but it's there. I hate when we try to say, yeah, but God says he wants you to just do away with it. And then we use the rear view mirror thing. Well, if I take my rear view mirror down, that just ruined that illustration, did it not? Right. OK, so so it doesn't matter. We don't need a neuralizer. We, we need new. It, it's it's almost like when, when when people want the pill to make them lose weight. Now, what's the problem if you depend totally on a pill for losing weight? Or what are you really saying? I'll tell you what I'm saying, because I wish there was a pill. Right. I'm saying I want to keep eating all the Snickers, all the Twix, all, all, all the Reese's peanut butter cups. All the Reese pieces. I want to keep drinking Mountain Dews till they go out of style. I want to keep doing all that and just take a pill. I don't want to change nothing about me. Christ is not a pill, right? He's going to produce some change in you. And if there's no change, he's not the real deal. The cross takes away the penalty, but the resurrection is what makes things new. Look, look at verse eight. We're not, we're not free to sin, by the way, too. This ain't where we're supposed to go. We're free from sin. Make sure you grab that. Number eight. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I'm like, David, you don't went too far, man. You don't went too far. What are you talking about broken bones and rejoice? I ain't never seen a brother rejoicing when he breaks something. I see him break something and they screaming and they yelling and they going crazy. They saying things they shouldn't. How evil, right? David knows what God's intention is, though. And we need to grab and make sure we understand what God's intention is. Because some of us think that our sin has permanently disqualified us. And it has not. We started saying we are all sinners, and that is good news because you've got to acknowledge you're a sinner before you can overcome it, right? The way then is this. You can tell what someone's intention is by, on the job by the tools that they're using, right? Think about it. Someone's going to, if Dave's getting ready to go destroy a home, he gets smiling and he gets happy because that means he gets on his big tractor, his bulldozer, or whatever else he's going to use, and he just tears stuff up. It feels good, don't it? You destroy that thing, baby. Right. But if he's going to do some remodeling, what's he got to go with? Tools. He can't roll in there with the bulldozer, right? No difference in this. Here, you're not getting it. We're a bunch of rednecks. Let's go this way. When somebody comes into the tire shop, key question at all tires. You knew it was coming back to tires eventually, right? Key question at tire shop. How big of a tire can I fit if you do a little trimming? Well, that depends on your definition of a little trimming. Because, see, you got the customer that doesn't want any rubbing. So, so they keep it safe and there's no tools needed other than the correct tools for mountain balancing and getting tire ready. But then you got the, the fellow who says, I just, I just want to push it a little bit and it's just plastic that it's hitting. So why don't we just cut that with like a pocket knife? That's a pretty small tool, right? Then you got the brother that says, I ain't got no money, but I'm 16 and my truck is squatting. So I need you to do whatever you can do to make a 38 fit on a truck with no lift. Well, then I go get a sledgehammer or a blue tip wrench and I cut off half his fender. Or I beat the snot out of his fender to make sure it's out of the way so the tires can turn. You see the difference? God 
put the wrecking ball on Jesus so that Jesus could put a chisel on us. You got it? He took the wrecking ball, the thing of destruction, so that he could take a chisel and finally tune us. The tool that somebody uses for the job makes all the difference on their intention. Correct? Now, does it mean the chisel don't hurt? No, the chisel hurts. Broke bones hurt. I ain't, any, anybody have a broke bone? Had one in their whole life? Did you shout for joy and excitement when it happened? So, so what, what, what is really, what has really happened here? What, what is really going on, right? God is waking us up. God is trying to wake David up and wake us up so that we understand the pain that we feel is a cause of something deeper. We need to address it. It's one of the biggest flaws with steroids. It's not that steroids don't produce great big old muscles if you work them right and all that stuff. The flaw with a steroid is it doesn't let you know when a joint or a ligament is hurt. So a man will keep on working or a woman, whoever is using it, will keep on working past that till they literally blow something out or destroy it totally. That's what we try to do, though. We try to take a steroid to fix a problem when God is saying, no, you need to address the issue first. And if we don't address the issue, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. So he says, these broken bones of your soul, this broken heart. God, this is your way of waking me up. So I rejoice in it. I rejoice in it, God, because a broken bone is better than death. Right? Conviction and guilt, they're terrible, they're painful, but but they're humbling. And how much worse would it be if, if, if painful, uh, destructive uh, lifestyle left unchecked led to destruction? He is rejoicing, he says, because of these broken bones. God's goal for us. And David realizes this. His goal for us is deliverance, not destruction. It's to come in with tools, not a bulldozer. Right? Now, some of us, we may need to build from the ground up, and maybe he does need a bulldozer. But but look at these last four verses in this psalm so we can get back to, to Samuel. I'm just going to read them, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Now he's understanding who God is and who he is. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then he follows with several more. Look at 13 through 18. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now we're getting real. Now he says, you know what? This is about kingdom building. This is where it gets real. I got my view off on my kingdom and forgot about your kingdom. Now I'm getting it back on the right track. So now I can build your kingdom the way you want it. I'm going to teach other people this. Verse 14. When you deliver me from my blood guiltness, oh God, oh God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Now we're getting to some worship, right? Huh? How perfect were the songs we picked today, by the way. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise and do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. David is now getting back on building God's kingdom, getting a nation that's going to know God and be with God. Right. True repentance is always accompanied by renewed focus on God's kingdom. Always. If you think you repented and your focus is just on getting your marriage back together, your focus is just on getting your job back. Your focus is just on getting your kids back. You failed. Now, those things sound good. Now, don't get me wrong. And those are those are by factors of what comes first. But if your first focus isn't on getting back God's kingdom and God's ways for you in your life, the rest of those things will never last. So you're going to try to rebuild. You'll just keep destroying them over and over and over again. And sin, sin starts by forsaking God's kingdom. That's what happens. You forsook commandment number one. 
God had not sent Nathan to condemn David. He sent, he didn't send Samuel to condemn Saul. He sent him to wake him up. If nothing else, maybe today right now, or, or maybe this is at David's house. Okay. So what a better place to be at your house right now to get woke up to realizing you've got some kind of sin you ain't dealt with. Right. And of course, you know, if you're in the house of God, that's a good place to do it too. Right. Deliverance, not destruction. God's mercy is so great. And it's so great. And here's what's awesome. I struggled and I wanted to kind of break this chapter up, but then I realized something significant. God allowed these men years ago, I think it's 1500s, to put verses and, and, and numbers by them. He allowed those men those years ago the wisdom to put these things in this chapter for a reason. Now, I didn't understand it. And, I, and I'll be honest, for about five out of seven days this week, I, I remember saying to myself, man, those guys really messed this one up. Why in the world would you include these last two sections in this same chapter? It needs another chapter in there. And then I realized something, though. It's the big lesson. It's why we spent so much time on Psalm rather than looking at, at everything in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Because when you go to these last two sections, which is 16 through 25 first, and then 25 through the end, here's what you get. Here's what you get. You get the result of David's repentance. And there's nothing better than getting the result of repentance. Okay? You, nobody wants to hear about all that and not get the result of it. You know, if you were to hear all that and just stop right there, everybody, well, well, what did David get out of it? Right. We want to know what to get out of it. I want to what am I going to get out of it? Here's what David got. He got. And I told you the greatest fear I could ever imagine in my life would be to lose my wife and my children. I don't know how I'd recover from. I really do not. I'm just being honest. Right. Can't imagine. Now, some of you have been through that. Some of you on screen have been through that. And and man, my condolences are with you 100 percent because I can't imagine that pain. Right. He's able to get through that. David, because of genuine repentance, is able to get through what I consider personally one of the greatest things I have to get through on planet Earth. Look at 16 through 25 just briefly. And you could write, you could write it out this way and sum it up. He's able to deal with grief and loss, grief and loss the right way and he's able to overcome it. Here's how. 16 starts. And you need to study this way more than we're going to have time to, right? 16 starts with David getting down on the ground and fasting and praying. Well, church, when you got grief and you got loss, you need to humble yourself. You need to fast and you need to pray. You need to ask God to do whatever God can do with it, right? But, but in these same sections, there comes a point when if he doesn't restore the situation, you got to go on. You have to be able to go on. And here's why. Because some people get stuck in the morning for longer than they were supposed to be. Now, I'm not saying you, you ever recover from the loss of a loved one, okay? But this applies to any kind of grief and any kind of loss, right? But what I'm saying is you don't want to get stuck in that morning, in the deep part of that morning for a lifetime. Because one of two things happen. You're always bitter and you're always hateful because you're always hurting. Or you begin to get in that self-pity party. Oh, well, poor, poor me. You just don't understand. No, some people don't understand. And that stinks. But the reality is God does. And God wants to pull you out of this thing that you're stuck in, of grief and loss and all that stuff. So don't grieve too long. It's just a little warning there. That's all it is. And he blows the mind of his followers with that. Did you catch what goes on? They've been coming. They've been checking on. They're worried about him. He's not eating. He's not doing nothing. He's just praying. He's doing, here it is, write it down. He's doing all he can with what he's given. You do all you can with what you're given. And then when there's no more you can do, well, let's see what it says. Actually, write this down. I'm sorry. I stole this, but it's really good. The ability, I didn't write down who I got it from, though. The ability to worship and honor God in a time of trial or crisis is a wonderful demonstration of spiritual confidence. 
The ability to worship and honor God in the time of trial or crisis is a wonderful demonstration of spiritual confidence. It's like being able to worship at a funeral. Can you imagine that? That's great trial. That's great loss. But the spiritual confidence is there. Because here's what happens. You get to this verse. Uh, verse 20. I don't know what translation you got, so I'll throw up both words. It says he arose. Or, or it says that he got up. Or it says rise above. That's it. We got to do this same thing. At some point, we got to rise above grief and sorrow, pick ourselves up and go on. You've got to. You've got to. And, and this has got big lessons in it now. You've got to do this. David being and getting right with God is what allowed him to push past the pain. We're often uh, we often allow the pain of our past to continue to rule us in our present. And we allow it to predetermine our future. That's not what God intended it to do. And this is it. The season of devotion turns to grief or is in grief and in mourning. And it's limited to where the problem is real. He gets up. He washes. He anoints himself. He changes his clothes and he worships. And he comes back and his servants are blown away by his spiritual strength. What you hear what they say? What did you just do? I, I went to worship. What did you do before that? I put on new clothes. What'd you do before that? I anointed myself. What'd you do before that? I washed because I ain't washed in a week and I stink. Right. But 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 look at this. Look at this. Now, this is where pushing past pain starts. Here's what he's doing. He washed. We, we got to be willing to wash the old stuff away. Got to be. He he anoints himself. We What's anointing of the holy. Please say, you know, the holy Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to go on. Right. He changes clothes. What's the Holy Spirit do? He makes things new. Right. Not a neuralizer making things new. All right. He changes clothes. You're going to he worshiped when you get all that going, you worship. And please understand this. If you're in one of these rough moments, if you truly believe that God is God, he deserves our worship, whether things are going well or not in our lives. So it's one of two things. He either God is not God or God is God. And if God is God, he truly deserves worship where things are going well. Then it says that he ate. I, I love the order of this thing, by the way. Right. He's so empty even when he goes to church, even when he goes to worship. We need to be empty sometime when we go to worship so that we get full of the right thing. Right. Then he comes back and he's it, it kind of reminds me of like the oxygen mask on the plane. Y- 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 y'all been on a plane. I don't know if they still did your, your, your little uh, free plane thing, but they tell you if we begin to crash, please put on your oxygen mask before you put on Abby's oxygen mask. Why? Because if you did, you can't save her. It ain't rocket science, right? I, I used to have the idea of, I'm the man. Like, I'm going to put on everybody else's oxygen mask, and then I'll put mine on. No, I'm not. I'll be dead before I put on the, second, the third one, probably, right? I'll be passed out. you got to put on yours before you can save somebody else. What, what is he saying? He ate. you got to get ourselves right first. Because look at what the very next thing he does. Now, after he eats, verse 24, it says that he comforted Bathsheba. Men, just a side note. He comforted her before he slept with her. Y'all get that? All right, there's some comforting that need to happen before other stuff. That's a whole other sermon. We'll ignore that till later, right? Come back. Maybe we'll do a Wednesday night study. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse four. He, he were commanded. Paul commands Corinthians, comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort from which we ourselves are comforted by God. What's he writing? He's saying, Christian, if you've been comforted by God, you ought to be using that to comfort somebody else. So if you ain't been comforted, guess what you can't do? You can't comfort somebody else. So, so what that means is if you didn't put on your own oxygen mask, don't be trying to put on anybody else's oxygen mask. Don't tell somebody else how to deal with something you hadn't already dealt with in your own life. Right? Now, this is hard, but this is true. 
Your experience with pain, suffering and loss is going to draw you closer to God than anything else. If you let it, if you let it, you're going to experience a new him in a fuller way that other people just can't grab when things are going well. And the result, you'll find yourself wanting to help other people, wanting to comfort others, wanting to love them in new ways. And then you'll get to 24 and 25, which has got all oh, so many big lessons, but I'm going to fly through them, I promise. Right. Still got seven minutes, eight minutes. All right. Verse 24, 25, 24. David, David comforts Bathsheba's wife. I do need to point this out. This is the first time, by the way, she's called Bathsheba his wife. Even when she was pregnant by him and married to him just a couple verses ago, she was still called the Hittite's wife. OK, so God is saying just because you covered up your sin doesn't mean it erased anything. Not till you get right does it erase anything. But here she's called Bathsheba, his wife. Right. Then what does it say? Verse 24. He went. He went into her and he lay with her. They think, why do you want to point? I need to point this out because here's what here's what's really important. I, I never caught this before. This shows that God did not command David to forsake or leave Bathsheba. Meaning this, even though his marriage originally began sinfully, he was now to honor God in the marriage commitment he's made to start over. I've had people ask before, maybe some of you that are watching, you know, man, you know, me and my wife, we, we kind of began on the wrong, on the wrong terms. Does that mean we're going to be stuck on the wrong terms forever? No, not according to this. Not according to what God is saying here. God is saying your fresh start has started. Now you got to live the right way the rest of the time. You don't get to go back and redo, unfortunately, okay? You start and you go. And what happens because he lay with her? Well, we know what happens. They got a baby. That's why you don't lay with somebody who's not your wife. 24, they called his name Solomon. Now, now oh, just, just briefly, man, this is what's awesome. It is this son that becomes the heir to the throne, guys. You think, what's so cool about that? This is sad of adulterous relationship is what's so cool about that. How many other sons did he have? Lots. Lots of sons. Now, there's the problem with having multiple women and multiple baby mamas, guys. When you got multiple baby mamas and you're the king, right? All the heirs want to be the leader, right? Well, why is my kid not get to be the leader? Why is my kid not get to be the leader? Why is my kid not get to be? I don't, you know, and it goes on and on and around and around and around, right? God picked Solomon, who began out of a desperate, adulterous relationship to be heir to the throne. What does this demonstrate? This demonstrates the truth that God is, has great forgiveness for repentant sinners. Think about how awesome and beautiful this picture is, man. It's this son, Bathsheba's son, that's going to also be the one to do what? What Solomon do? Remember? We talked about it, well, weeks ago now. He builds the temple. But hold on. He began from an adulterous relationship. God don't care about what you begin. He cares about how you're going to finish. He cares about how real it's going to get along the way. And, and here's, here's what else it goes. I told you I, I'm going to do it. Here's what else. He pushes on to this next part. Now, this next part really blew my mind, all right? I'm wondering, what in the world does this battle have anything to do with what in the world is going on up until verse 26, right? There's no way, right? Second thing you can do when you've got true repentance, you can get back on winning the battles you're supposed to win. Man, what? These guys 15 or uh, 500 years ago in the 1500s, they knew what they were doing. Not saying all verses are perfect, just saying for this section, God let me know it was real, right? How about this? How about this? Look, look at exactly what's going on. Joab has been struggling for a year. Now, this is a battle he was supposed to. It was supposed to be. Catch what went on now. You got to go back to chapter 11. This was supposed to be such an easy battle for Joab and the men that he just sent them and he stayed at home. Remember, that's how he got on the roof. Wasn't leading the battle when he was supposed to be leading. He got himself in trouble. He stays home because it's supposed to be that easy. But yet Joab is stuck in this battle for an entire year or 40 weeks, whatever you want to call it. Okay. 
Right? So he's stuck there for all this time. Can you imagine how many times he probably sent notes back to David? But I don't know what's going on back at the palace, but you need to get some stuff straight because we should not be getting our tails whooped day after day for 40 weeks against this little tiny battle right here. He even gets to this part right here. Now, here's what happens. Here's what's awesome. David gets right with God. What magically happens in 26 to 28? What's Joab telling? Read it. Read it if you don't know. What's he saying? Sum it up. Yeah, that's it. You got to get the story. Forget trying to quote scripture word by word, by the way, guys. There's a time to do that, but there's a time to get the story. The story is what? We got it. We finally got it. He's so, this, Joab's, you need to get your good guys like Joab. He's such a good guy. Though. He says, we got it. I didn't stop the water supply. I got everything ready. But if I go in there right now and take it over, they're going to name this place after me. So he knows how to appeal to David too, right? And, oh, I don't want to name it after one of my men. I want to name it after me. So what does David do? David gathered, verse 29, David gathered all the people together and he went to Rob. This, this is the final phase, what I call David's true restoration. Now, the rest of these chapters are going to have a lot of consequences from his sin now. But this is the final stage of restoration right here. He went back to doing what he should have been doing all along. He's leading Israel out to battle instead of hanging out in Jerusalem. When you get true repentance, you can get back to doing what you were supposed to be doing all along and quit doing things you shouldn't have been doing. Isn't this awesome? Because here's what we, we think sometimes like people's people's punishment should punish them forever. Right. I'll be honest. There's been I'm not going to use any names, but there's been like certain pastors that have failed big. And then like they get right back up and, and, and start preaching again. I'm like, ah, now I'm not saying you should get right back up either. There's a period of time. OK, but but this is a beautiful picture, because what this is saying is your, your sin. It didn't stop you from getting back up. It didn't stop you from getting back to doing what you were supposed to be doing. And it should not stop those men from being able to get up and give maybe some warning to people so that they don't fall the way that pastor fell. Right. They can do something that other people can't do. I don't care what position we're talking. Sunday school, worship leader, uh, youth pastor, whatever. All of them. Believer. Just a believer. I think sometimes the world thinks, oh, you failed. That means you're just one of us. You're not a believer anymore. No. Your failure does not disqualify you from being a child of God. When you acknowledge that failure, matter of fact, it makes you more of a child of God because you're getting your priorities back in order and being honest about it. Look, look at what he says. Uh, 29 still fought against it and took it. David gets victory. If God was mad at David, don't you think he wouldn't have got the victory? Maybe, maybe even God could have got him to the battle and took him out. Right. I'm going to take him out. Right. It's going to be a punishment. No, but what did Nathan tell him? You shall not die. This isn't going to be your punishment for this. Right. Right. So his sin did not condemn him to a life of failure or defeat. And neither does yours. Your sin does not have to be something that leads you into a life of failure and defeat. There was chastisement for sin, but but it doesn't mean his life is ruined. Look at verse 30. Last one. And he took their king's crown and they put it on David's head. Right? David's sin didn't take away his crown. Now, if he'd have responded to Nathan a different way, maybe it would have. Maybe it would have. But because David responded with confession, with repentance, he still got a crown on his head at the end of this thing. Church, hear, hear me right now and hear, hear God. You're, David's fall, maybe it should put you on guard. And if you hadn't fell, the, then maybe it should, it should wake you up to realize that uh, I could fall too. Or maybe you are falling. And God's wanting to make sure you understand you can recover from this thing, right? That's what God's all about. God is, is he's got Jesus with this, this, this chisel, not this wrecking ball, wanting to get things right for us. It's almost like I thought about it last week or two weeks ago. We were doing the tape thing. I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember the tape illustration, right? 
You, you notice when you first peel tape off, you can hear it more. And then you keep using it. And if you stay stuck in sin, that, that's what happens to your heart. You quit hearing the that you need to hear to get stuff straight. Right? We, we, we need to hear that sometime so that we get ourselves straight, so that we can be who we're supposed to be and do what we're supposed to do, getting back about God's kingdom business. That's what David does. That's what we need to do. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for this morning, Lord God. God, we're, we're excited about what this chapter really says, about what Psalm 51 said. God, God, about a, a pause break that you gave David, Lord God, to write out this great song, to show us, Lord God, Gospel-centered, Yahweh-centered repentance. God, wake us up right now if we're in an area, Lord God, we need to be woke up. God, heighten our senses if we're in an area, Lord God, where we, we need to be more aware. God, help us do anything but ignore this passage this morning. God, use it, Lord God. Come in with your, your tool belt, Lord God, and chisel on us. God, we know it'll be painful, but God, I pray like David, we can say that we will rejoice with the broken spirit and the broken bones because we know what you really mean to do through that. God, restore us in such a special way. For it's in your great name we pray. Amen.